Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show. Busy as ever, we're back from Chicago, had a great week there for PR Decoded and the Purpose Awards. Brilliant to be back in person with you all. We'll talk about that a little bit. We did we did a special podcast, which hopefully you heard last week, but so uh, we'll just wrap that and uh, talk about other newsy topics in company with my co-host, Frank Washkirk, Executive Editor of PR Week. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Did you survive Chicago? I did, and I enjoyed it. Good, wasn't it? It was. It's good to uh good to get out and about. Again. Yeah, yeah. Meet people. And we've got a great guest this week. It's Shelley Spectre, who's the president of Spectre and Associates, but is also the founder and director of the Museum of PR. Shelley, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's brilliant to have you on the show, Shelley. And I'm really looking forward to chatting about the brilliant work you've done over the years establishing the museum and also to congratulate you you've been given an award a page society distinguished service award and it's the 25th anniversary of the museum of pr so tell us about um the award first what was that and how did uh, you it was last month wasn't it when you were um, awarded that yeah it was exactly a month ago it was uh september 18th i think in, in chicago it was just one of the best nights of my life and uh, just truly a spectacular event, being able to speak in front of all these friends that I've had for years. Um, I've been a member of PAGE since 1998, so this was truly an honor. Yeah, fantastic stuff. And it's the 25th anniversary of the museum. For those who don't know, just tell us about the Museum of PR and how it got started, 1997, and um, and where you're at with it now. Okay. so. Uh, the museum today is in Lower Manhattan. We're open to the public five days a week, regular business hours. We host a lot of students and researchers and practitioners from all over the world. We're the only museum devoted to the public relations industry. And it's interesting, there's not even a museum for advertising. There's a brand museum in London, but there's no museum of advertising. So I feel it's really special that the public relations industry has its own museum. Yeah, that is interesting. That is, um, yeah. and that's great. The PR's got one and advertising hasn't, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that there were about 13 different tries um, over history of creating an advertising museum. And certainly it would be, you know, an obvious thing to do with, you know, all the visuals that you have in advertising. Mm. In our business, of course, we really don't have visuals. And people will say to me, what the hell could be in a museum of public relations? What do you have the, the walls loaded with uh, press releases? What, <laughs> what, what could it possibly be? And, um, but you'd be surprised. So we have 5,000, more than 5,000 artifacts some of them are about 200 years old that we've collected along the way. But of course, as you know, Steve, we started with the artifacts from Edward Bernays when he died. And um, as your listeners and viewers may know, we, my husband and I were friends with Bernays in the last 10 years of his life. So we would go up to his house in Cambridge 
Massachusetts, and we would do oral histories of him, starting from when he was age 94. He was sharp right through his 103rd birthday, which uh, is a very famous picture of when we made a birthday party for him for his 103rd birthday. We had gotten a cake, and I insisted on putting 104 candles on it. People were saying, whatever you do, don't light it. But I said, this could be the guy's last birthday. I've got to light it. And so I lit the candle and the whole cake went on fire. <laughs> Unfortunately, we a picture of it. And, uh, you know, we well, that's a bit be... more interesting than just the normal <laughs> cake picture, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And the only one, you know, in this picture, the only one who really notices that the cake is on fire is, is Bernays himself. The rest of us are all just singing happy birthday. <laughs> For those who don't know him, tell us who he was. He's kind of... Many consider him maybe the originator of PR, but it's quite debated as well. And there's also, you've, I've heard you tell some really interesting stories about the role of Mrs. Bernays as well in the whole process. So tell us a bit about that. Okay. Well, first, uh, you know, I think public relations, not the field itself, but the practice of public relations goes back, you know, centuries and centuries, actually, the beginning of world civilization. There's sure. always been public relations people. There's always been people who have motivated and influenced large groups of people, right? And it comes down to that's what public relations is. However they did it, you know, today we may use social media and television, but back then they may have used hieroglyphics. But in any case, it's been around for centuries, but not until the early part of the 20th century did it become an established profession. So at the time, there were press agents, there were publicity people, right? But then when Bernays decided to set up shop with his then newlywed wife, uh, Doris Bernays, or Doris Fleischmann Bernays, uh, he decided to elevate the field, the stature, you know, created as, you know, high level as perhaps accounting or legal. Um, and so he created the name for his firm, Council of Public Relations. And now we stuck. should say it wasn't Doris was no relation to the Fleischmann of Fleischmann Hillard. No, just a coincidence, not. right? Yeah, yeah. And total coincidence. Uh, that was Al Fleischmann who came along after World War II. Yeah. But Doris had been a sports writer for the Herald Tribune at the time, and that's how they met. And uh, she was a wonderful woman, and she actually was a suffragette herself, very progressive for the time, and she insisted on covering boxing. So she became the first and perhaps only female ever to be a boxing reporter. Right. So she was a very prolific writer and um, a real suffragette. So she was the first person, first female to use, insist on using her maiden name and her passport. And in fact, the night that they got married at the Waldorf, she insisted on signing in. You know, can you imagine back then in 1922, <laughs> signing in with your maiden name? It just didn't seem right. But, um, you know, despite how progressive she was, she had to live with the culture of the time. And so while she was a writer and a professional in her own right in the firm, she wasn't allowed to go into client meetings. And that, that's just the way it was back then. So she was kind of behind the scenes, although we all know that she was uh, behind many of the, the big ideas that Bernays had. We can't identify exactly which ones, but I see her fingerprints 
in a lot of the work that was done by the firm. Yeah, for sure. And that mission to make PR as respected as accounting and medicine and other professions, the legal profession, it's definitely something that resonates to this day, doesn't it? And we almost, I think we almost feel like in the last couple of years that finally PR has got there. So what do you think Bernays would think if you looked at the industry nowadays? I would say that the industry itself is, the heart of the industry is very much the same. The heart of the industry has not changed as far as its goals, its mission, right, um, in 100 years, right? But uh, the way we practice it certainly has changed. So it, People say to me, oh, look how much has changed in the past 30 years. It really hasn't. It's the media that have changed. Mm. So imagine when Bernays was first starting out, they didn't even have sound on film yet. And uh, so it was one of his big ideas early on was to have uh, for a commercial for Dodge cars, have Charlie Chaplin speak for the first time. Wow. Okay, so that... You know, Talkies were a big deal and that started in 1927. And then radio. And I remember talking to Harold Burson about when television came out. And Harold said it was such a big deal. And there was a two-day PRSA conference in 1961 talking about this new medium of television. How is PR going to be handling television? What can we benefit from it? How do we use it to reach our publics? So the same thing happened when we, you know, when the internet developed and we had the web and we could do websites and now we have social media. So I think that the moral to all of this is that the public relations profession has stayed the same. It's just the way we get to do it is different. It's technologically different. And I think 20 years from now, there'll be something else. And, you know, social media will just be something that we do just, you know, in the same old way that we have handled television and radio in the past. Yeah, I agree. I know Frank does as well. He thinks we'll all be taken over by robots uh, within 20 years. Isn't that right, Frank? (laughs) Robots or some, you know, metaverse type thing. We'll see, right? We'll all be in the metaverse. Yeah, Yeah, we'll see. Absolutely. Yeah. And okay, so tell us about some of the other artifacts that people are most popular when when they come to visit the Museum of PR. Or or if you wanted to visit, what would be the things you say, ah, you've got to look at this, you know? Well, I I think the the thing that people most want to see, well, there's actually two things. One is Eddie's inbox. So um, as I mentioned, after he died, the, uh, the family invited us up to his house to collect what we wanted from his you know, from uh, his papers, his uh, the things in his desk and his the desk itself, and some of the furniture. And uh, one of the things that's still the most precious thing to us is his inbox. First of all, kids today don't even know what an inbox is, right? They've never seen this right. box that people used to put mail in. But that we have the box loaded with the same material that was there the day he died. So it's fascinating to look at what he felt was so important that he had to keep in his inbox. And most of the material, interestingly, were writings, published writings by his wife, Doris, which I think is lovely. Yeah, very nice. And and people would be surprised about that. I know his family was very surprised to hear that. Um, The second thing that people want to see when they come to the museum is a 1928 unpublished manuscript by Ivy Lee. And it was called Ivy Lee's Publicity Book. 
People don't even know that he ever wrote this book because it was never published. And tell us who Ivy Lee is for those who don't know. So Ivy Lee is the other father of public relations. He actually preceded Bernays. He was the father of crisis communications. He wrote the first press release. He started working with the Rockefellers in the late 1800s and handled the Ludlow Massacre uh, in, uh, in Colorado. He handled the Penn Railroad derailment in 1904, which is a very interesting story. So all of this stuff that he gained along his years of practice, uh, you know, working for individuals like the Rockefellers and also working for large corporations, he wrote about in a book called Mr. Lee's Publicity Book. It's in a binder and he typed it out and, uh, you know, we have his original edits on it and it had never been published. So the museum decided to publish it ourselves about five years ago. And it was the first time people saw this, the writing. He, there are no other books that are published by Ivy Lee compared with Bernays, who had 12 books published. Great stuff. Yeah. And does the advice uh, in the book still stand up? Yeah, it's very funny. Um, he criticizes media clutter. And <laughs> yeah. now this is 1928. So what was there? <laughs> Billboards, right? Yeah. Silent films. It wasn't even radio. They would be having a fit now, wouldn't they? There's so much media. Yeah. We're bombarded with it. So, yeah. Right. But he, but he says you have to be really careful to see what was put out there by public relations people and what was, you know, what's the truth. So it's all about navigating through the media clutter and something that's extremely true to this day. You mentioned Harold Burson. Do you have any of his artifacts there? Do you, I saw that Dan Edelman and the, the Edelman celebrated its 70th anniversary by opening its own museum in Chicago. So are there, are there artifacts uh, at the Museum of PR from some of these other great um, pioneers? Well, we have, before Harold moved to Memphis, we, he gave us a whole bunch of stuff from his office, a lot of mementos from past campaigns, like uh, uh, a Coke can, you know, when he introduced Coke again, it says Harold on the can. Oh, yeah. And some letters, correspondence that he had with Ronald Reagan. Uh, his family gave us, though, the most precious uh, artifact of all from Harold's collection. It's a letter he wrote when he was still in the army in Germany in 1945. And he was writing to an old boss of his, and he said, you know, when I get back to New York, what I think I want to do is open up New York's first industrial PR firm. And what he was saying was business to business, but that phrase hadn't been created yet. He said, and maybe even I'll think about merging with an advertising agency. I mean, how prescient that was. Yeah. So and that's exactly started. what happened. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's a handwritten, it's a four page note. And we have the original of that. I, I just love that. Because he knew back then exactly what he wanted to do. And he was saying, you know, New York has it's full of PR firms, but none of them do industrial PR. Mm. And yes, I remember when Burson was, you know, considered one of the biggest and best of the, it of was, the B2B firm. It was the biggest, wasn't it? Um, so we could go on for ages here. Tell us, for those who want to visit, how do they do it? You do lots of events, both virtual and in person, which I like to visit myself. Um, how can people interact with the museum and what would you like them to do? Well, we have very strong online presence. Uh, we are considered the number one PR educational resource in the world. A lot of uh, schools use the oral histories that we have online in their classrooms so go to prmuseum.org. 
You can sign up there for an, an online appointment or a, an in-person appointment. And uh, we do have events. We have our uh, second annual Native American in communications event coming up November 3rd. And uh, Steve, I don't know if you watched last year. You can always see the, the video online. But uh, it's fascinating. This is a whole new world. I mean, we talk about DEI, but people have forgotten about Native Americans mm. and their role in communications. So a lot of the people that we're going to have on the show are tribal communicators. And their job is to weigh the interests of business with the needs of their community. And at the same time, they are the ultimate storytellers. And to listen to them talk about protecting the tradition of storytelling within their reservations, it's fascinating stuff. And it's an area that no other organization has, has yet tapped into. So we have six diversity events every year. They're now fully online. I hope we can get back to doing them in person. But they're very, very popular. We've, we've done 33 events in the past, well, since 2017. Yeah, it's great what you're doing. And, um, you know, keep up the brilliant work, Shelley. And thanks from, from everyone for doing what you do. You thoroughly deserve that Distinguished Service Award and still lots to do. And I do uh, recommend that you check out the museum, check out the website and come and see it if you're in New York and come to one of the events. So thanks for joining us and we'll get your input on some of these uh, new stories of the day. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. Frank, just a quick wrap on PR Decoded and the Purpose Awards in Chicago last week. It was a brilliant event, wasn't it? Back in person with everyone. You did a special show with Fitz, uh, our podcast guru, and uh, to wrap it up, which I suggest you check out. But any final sort of thoughts, having uh, got over the week and back to New York? Well, I thought it was terrific just to be back in person after a few years. It feels like it's been forever. And it's great to see everybody and bump into people that you might not see all the time. Chicago is a great agency city. And there's a lot of great corporate in-house side communicators as well. Great to see everybody. I thought there were a lot of great sessions throughout the, the conference and really touching on the biggest things on people's minds right now. I'm, I'm just skimming this, uh, this panel article on, on overcoming the trust deficit uh, and how companies can do that. And we know that's something that is, is you know, at, at the, the top of CEOs' minds and at the top of CCOs' minds. Um, but also how to engage employees and how to rally them behind the company's purpose um, and how to use that to your advantage, especially as, you know, returning to the office and companies are dealing with so many ranges of issues, uh, such as when they speak out on hot topics, which is something that uh, everybody wants more information about. So I thought it was a really good conference with a lot of good information. And of course, the Purpose Awards were Tuesday night as well. Yeah, it was the, the, uh, the perfect mix of people right at the top of the profession, the most senior client-side people. It wasn't one of these conferences where you're just hanging with agency folks. There were a load of agency people there too, and that was great. Lots of CEOs. We had a agency network, the first meeting of that, the CEO partner network, and a lot of students there as well and young people, which really added a lot to the event. It was a very diverse audience. And people stayed right until the end, 5.15 on Wednesday. Usually the rooms have emptied out by then, but the room was still full. People were still into it and still enjoying the content. And to your point on the Purpose Awards, that's providing the case studies people can aspire to emulate. There's no playbook yet written. And there were some brilliant examples and case studies there you can 
download a digital ebook and look at all those and, and study and learn from those. So yeah, really terrific to be back in person. Loads of people there from New York, even though we're in Chicago. It's funny that <laughs> we actually, we almost get more people there from New York in when we go to Chicago than we do when we stay in town because people tend to get distracted and uh, get back to the office. So yeah, really great. Thanks to everyone who came out. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to all our speakers. Um, a really top show. Let's talk about this story. Berlin Rosen, they were involved with the community communication strategy around the family's victory in the, the Alex Jones suit. So talk us through that one, Frank. Right. Um, and as I, I think most of our readers have probably been following the story and are aware of the fact that Alex Jones was ordered uh, by a jury to pay almost a billion dollars in damages uh, to the families of victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School mass shooting that took place. Uh, in 2012. Jones, you might know, uh, has falsely claimed uh, several times that the families were paid actors and that the children who died in the massacre basically never existed. Um, so Berlin Rosen has been working uh, with lawyers for the families uh, and also with the families themselves um, and really emphasize to them what Jones's tactics were going to be, uh, you know, taking several of his companies bankrupt in an effort to not have to pay, for instance, and, and sort of educating them not to take the bait and not to uh, do, you know, freelance and do interviews on their own uh, and things like that. So they had a very earned media strategic uh, campaign that they were doing around the settlement news. Um, I, I think it worked well for them. Um, and one of the executives at Berlin Rosen, uh, which of course is a New York based public affairs, uh, firm, um, branched out beyond public affairs, I should say, but, but, you know, the roots in public affairs, uh, one of the executives from the agency said it's the most important work that they will ever do. Um, and that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty stunning quote when you think about all of the different crises and issues that, um, that these agencies work on. It's a pretty stunning mentality that I just don't comprehend somebody putting people who've already been through such a horrendous experience, putting through that further trauma. And I'm so glad that they uh, got the justice at least. And I, since money's never going to bring those kids back, but I so hope they do get some sort of recompense there. Shelley, I know you were following that story. What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, I remember watching um, Alex Jones had set up when the decision was being made or the jury was coming out and giving their decisions on um, the victims, you know, the compensation to the victims, Alex Jones had set up a split screen, if you remember that. Yeah. And he was pretty much just making money off of that and selling his vitamin supplements and his bodybuilding supplements and, you know, and playing, you know, how poor he was and how bankrupt he was. It was so utterly disgusting. I mean, it just added to the disgustingness of, of this whole character. And then to think that this man was also involved in with Trump and Roger Stone and all of that. And you tie all those people together and what a terrible period of time this has been. Yeah, it's, uh, he's not a pleasant individual, so I think we'll move on from him. And um, Frank, a big uh, agency win this week. Zeno has won a nice new account from one of its uh, main competitors. That's right. Uh, Aldi, the supermarket chain, has appointed Zeno Group as its PR AOR in the U.S., 
They started working together last month after an RFP process that started all the way back in March. Uh, the incumbent on the account was Weber Shanwick. Uh, the work is going to be focused on all aspects of brand and corporate reputation. Uh, that includes earned media, creative, influencer, uh, executive positioning, uh, CEO counsel, and a range of other things. Uh, they officially, Zeno officially starts work with the supermarket chain at the start of next year. They're in a tradition uh, transition period right now. Very nice win for Zeno, and uh, I guess uh, a loss for Weber there. How's Aldi perceived in the U.S.? Is that uh, I know from Europe, it's, I know how it's perceived over there. How's well, how, how is it perceived? In well, it's 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 kind of a discount retailer, I suppose. So you go there to get you you know to stock up. If you're a, a if you're a student, for example, you love Aldi, you'll go, or if you're on a budget, for sure you'll you'll be going there because you'll be able to get um, bargains and. Um, you know, food and drink on a on a budget. That's interesting because I think here they're probably best known for organics uh, and things like that. Yeah, that is interesting. And I guess they could they've got a bit of a cleaner footprint that they can create that image for themselves. Um, How long have you ever had the account? Uh, they had had it for a few years. Not totally sure on the exact link, but they've had it for a few years. Have you tracked how the agency world has changed in the museum, Shelley? It's obviously you talked about this, some of the, you know, Bursons and the, the early agencies, but it's changed a lot, hasn't it? There's a lot more. And the, and the, the, the ones at the top, Edelman, Weber, um, are, you know, I remember the days when if you went to Harold's office, he had a, a chart up there, for, I think, from the 80s when it was Burson number one and Hill and Knowlton number two, right? Funnily, funnily yes, enough, he had that one on his wall, not the current one, but it has exactly. changed, hasn't it? Oh, my God. It certainly has. And also COVID has changed the agency world a lot because a lot of people started their own firms at home. Right. Became, you know, uh, solo practitioners. One thing that has changed a lot is, um, of course, you know, if you look post-war, everybody who started an agency was a man. Right. Yeah. And now women make up 80, 85, even 90 percent of the industry. So when we're talking about diversity, our next big diversity problem down the road, Steve, is men. And um, <laughs> seriously, I mean, when I got into the field, as you know, I mean, I was the only woman in the room. And now we see that there were no guys in the classroom. So, you know, we, th that's an early look at what the profession is going to be like in, a, in just a few years time. Yeah, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, Zeno and Weber are both led by women, Barbie Siegel and, um, you know, Gail Hyman. So I think when I first arrived here 12 years ago, there were lots of women in the industry, but there weren't so many right at the top levels, whereas now I think there are. And if you look at the top 10 agencies, there's more run by that's women right. than there are by men. So that's changed a lot. Yeah, interesting concept. Yeah, maybe <laughs> we've got to get ethnic diversity and... Uh, other uh, minorities sorted before the men, though, I think. But uh, I take your point, for sure. Um, Frank, we've been looking forward to Semaphore, at least looking forward to what it might look like for a while now. It's Ben and Justin Smith's long-awaited uh, media property, and it's launched this week. Tell us about it, and what do you think? It's very yellow, uh, if you look at the website. <laughs> so it, um, I, I feel like Semaphore... So the, the Financial Times is pink, and Semaphore is yellow. Yeah, right? uh, it it's definitely has a distinctive color. Um the articles are interesting in that they are a mix of the things you need to know, like should be in a news article, but also 
the reporter or editor's view uh, on the topic, as well as what the opposite side of the story is, the opposing view. Uh, and there's also like a broader context section at the bottom of the articles. It's interesting. Uh, it's also very newsletter driven. You can sign up for several of their newsletters on their homepage. Um, and again, this is from uh, the two Smiths, uh, Ben Smith being the former um, the former uh, top editor of BuzzFeed uh, and the, uh, you know, really had that must read Sunday night column uh, covering mm-hmm. media. Uh, the at Times the New York well. Times and also the um, and this is in partnership with the former CEO of Bloomberg News. Um, they have some really big names, I think, from the media world uh, on their uh, on their masthead. You know, Liz Hoffman is covering business. And I think people who follow politics know Dave Weigel is covering uh, Americana. Um, I going to be interesting to see how this this works out. I mean, look, there's a lot of new and interesting types of media out there, whether it's this or it's Axios uh, or it's more specific things like Politico. So uh, we will see how they're doing in a couple months. Yeah, Shelley, obviously PR exists alongside the media, doesn't it? And it seems like a bit of a golden era for the media. We've got all these launches, new types of product, Puck Information, some of the ones Morning Brew, some of the ones Frank mentioned. It's almost like, when do we get the time to read all this stuff? Because in the meantime, you know, the the, the the Times, the Journal, the Post, they're all sort of really doing good stuff as well and um, modernizing themselves. What do you make of the modern media environment? Oh, I love it. I, I really do. And I love Axios, the way it's covering the communications industry right now. Um, I, I love how succinct everything is. I love that you can get any paper in the world on your screen. Um, I teach a class at Baruch, by the way, and, uh, you know, I've been an adjunct instructor for many years, 15 years, I think, and uh, one of the uh, applications of every student is to read the front page of the New York Times every day, Right. because I think that it's not just knowing the news, it's knowing how to write the news, knowing how to, what news is, because a lot of PR classes, they're not talking about news. Back when I was going to school, it was all very journalism focused. So I think that the news business is doing really well and flourishing. And I think that more PR young people have got to be looking at the news media more. Frank, Axios has done a brilliant job of packaging up that smart brevity concept, haven't they? But Mm -hmm. I would contend that PR Week's been doing that for ages with our breakfast briefing (laughs) for the last 15 years and the way we cover things. They've just packaged it up and, and fair play to them. It's all about marketing and PR, I suppose. Yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, We have a very succinct thing, uh, five things of um, the top marketing and communications news that's happened since, we, you know, back in the day, we would say since you left the office the day before. So <laughs> since about 6 p.m. Eastern, yeah. every morning in your inbox. And we know it's one of the most popular things we do. And uh <laughs> expertly guided by Mr. Washgick there and the team. So let's move on to Ulta Beauty because that was a really interesting story, the way they responded to transphobic comments made about one of their podcast hosts. Yeah, they had um, David Lopez, who is a gender-fluid hairdresser, interview uh, Dylan Mulvaney, who is a trans influencer, on a recent – they have their own branded podcast called The Beauty Of, um, and they were the two participants in a recent – edition of the podcast, and they got a lot of uh, transphobic blowback on social media. So they put out a statement essentially saying that they believe beauty and their products are for everybody, 
and uh, essentially urging people on social media to to treat the topic and the participants with respect. They did respond individually to social media posts, although uh, they turned off comments uh, on the YouTube version of the podcast. I'm always interested to see which brands respond individually to people on social media and which do not. I'm, I'm curious as to whether people think that's a waste of time or whether they think it's effective. Um, so I, you know, I think that the statement they put out, they handled this just about as well as they could have. Yeah. The nuts and bolts of how you handle those sort of things is something we know we get a lot of traffic for. And obviously is top of mind for the modern PR pro, right. And the social media team. So to your, to your point there about individual posts, some, frankly, some people are just not worth engaging, are they? But others you should do. So interesting to see how they responded and good for them, by the way, um, for, um, fronting that up and um, pushing back on this sort of hateful comments. Um, it's results season, Q3. Publicis and Omnicom have already reported. It's looking good, still looking good. I mean, there's a recession around the corner, but the year on year is uh, looking very good, Frank. It's uh, surprisingly good, I think. Uh, so Publicis was earlier this week. Now, we don't have PR-specific numbers for them, but we know that the holding company is up 10.3% in Q3, and it is even paying about half of its employees a bonus of sorts so they can cope better with uh, cost-of-living increases that are caused by inflation. That sounds like a great idea to me, Frank. (laughs) It does to me, too. And um, they also raised their guidance for the rest of the year, as did Omnicom. Uh, which also had a very strong quarter in Q3. Um, The holding company overall posted organic revenue growth of 7.5%, but the PR firms uh, were up considerably more than that at 12.6%. So um, it's really bullish, I think, for for the agency world. Uh, based on the performance in Q3. And Omnicom also raised their guidance for the rest of this year. So that's um, it's a story running contrary to the rest of the economic news out there, how well the agencies are performing or have performed in the last three months. Yeah, and don't forget that's on the back of a really massive year last year, right? So it's great performance on top of great performance. And I suppose, Shelley, looking back historically, the good thing about PR, I mean, nobody wants tough times, but PR's needed just as much in tough times as good times, isn't it? So hopefully we're seeing that the the activities are being uh, going to be re- used and, and utilized in a recession or, or before a recession. How do you see that historically? Well, I, I see that during what well, it's interesting during COVID was the heyday for the public relations profession. I hate to say it that way, but uh, it's true because the CCOs were relied upon more than ever by the leadership. So I think, you know, CMOs kind of were pushed aside. Budget went into the communications officers and they had to look at all they had to deal with crises wise internally and externally. So I think from that, um, the industry as a whole got a whole lot of respect and a whole lot of awareness outside of the usual and, um, it's, uh, you know, everything bodes well for the public relations profession. Yep. And we're all in favor of that. So long may it continue. And just to finish off, Frank, people moves. On the move. Not as many this week. One notable one. Oh, I'm sure they'll start coming in immediately now. Uh, it's been that kind of year. So uh, the telemedicine company Hims and Hers has hired Brian O'Shaughnessy as its first chief communications officer. Uh, if you look at his resume, it's a real who's who list of top tech companies, Silicon Valley. 
Uh, he's been a triller nut. Um, he was one of the founders of Mana Collective, and he has worked at uh, Skype and Google and Verisign and uh, various other places in the very as in the valley as well. So, looking forward to uh, what kind of stamp Brian puts on the company. What does Brian remind you of in in our context, Frank? Do you remember that box that arrived once in PR Week Towers? Got the one with the pumpkin in it. No, the one with the scratching sound. <laughs> it was a box of um, lobsters. Do you remember? <laughs> oh, Brian was behind the box he, of lobsters. He was. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's a whole story. We'll have to. That needs a whole episode on its own. But it was a. It was an interesting time because he'd he'd mislaid his laptop the night before when we'd been out uh, having a nice uh, dinner and a couple of drinks and uh, it was a, um, a mark of appreciation for returning that to him so uh, I'll always remember that it was great fun and I remember the lobsters but not who was behind them there so. you go so uh, was yeah good again. old Brian Shelley it's been great to have you on the show thank you so much keep up the brilliant work and look forward to seeing you at some museum events uh, very soon me too thank you please tune in November 3rd to our Native Americans and communications event yeah that sounds fantastic and uh, on that note we have our 40 under 40 event next week on the 27th of October it's one of the most always one of the best nights of the year a lot of fun real energy in the room great diverse next generation of leadership so do join us for that and we have our hall of fame on the 5th of december honoring some legends in the industry really nice dinner that everybody enjoys it so do come along to that and we're getting ready to launch our healthcare and pharma conference and awards we'll launch them on the 8th of november so more to come on then but that's all we've got time for we'll see you next time on the pr week thank you for listening to this week's episode of the pr week to find more episodes visit prweek.com